spend my days with a woman unkind, smoke my stuff and drink all my wine. Made up my mind, make a new start, going to California with an aching in my heart. Someone told me there's a girl out there with love in her eyes and flowers in her hair. AM 1600 KIV, ABQ.FM, I'm Eddie Erg on the Rock of Talk, and this is The Spirits of New Mexico with Jim Hammond, sans Kevin Petrosnik. But with a very special guest, which I'm eager to hear about. And uh, we've got uh, our brand new producer here, straight from Cumulus, uh, who's joined us. We appreciate him uh, being and putting all this together as well, as well as the great script, as always, that we get from Jim Hammond, level one sommelier, and uh, your wine expert now for more than eight years right here in the Kiva. Jim, good afternoon. How are you? I am great. Uh, how could you not be great when you have some wonderful sparkling wines and also... A good new friend that I've made, um, and uh, Christopher Goblet. Uh, it's uh, spelled like goblet, and in fact, uh, I, I was thinking, well, if you're going to be in the beverage industry, that's a perfect name to have, isn't it? Amen. <laughs> so and, preordained uh, for this job. Is preordained, like exactly. <laughs> preordained is is good because you have really uh, done a great job. Actually, I wanted you to talk about that uh, rather than my bragging about you, but. Uh, give us just a little background of, of who you are and why we want you on our show. Well, it's a pleasure to meet you, Eddie and, and Jim. It was great to connect with you the other night at Gruet. Um So my name Christopher Goblet. I uh, moved to New Mexico in 1999, right before the uh, the the panic of the millennium was coming. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Oh, yeah. That was going to destroy us all. So um, uh, I've been here for about 20 years, and uh, as I was explaining, I... Um, I think my first, you know, introduction to the local craft beverage scene was probably Santa Fe Brewing Company, and I just moved from London to New Mexico, so I was into beer, and I, I thought it was an interesting place to hang out, so I got to know those guys, and then Second Street, and uh, the beer crew up in Santa Fe, and I put my first beer festival on uh, with a friend of the station, Scott Hutton, back in 2006, called the New Mexico Beer and Nut Festival. It was a. Uh, we were thumbing our nose at Santa Fe Wine and Chili and all their success. So I, I looked around for another crop in New Mexico, and we grow a lot of nuts. And uh, so we did. Boy, we you're did right about that. Craft beer with peanuts, pecans, pistachios, and pinions, and uh, <laughs> about a thousand people showed up, and uh, and that was my entree into meeting Nico Ortiz from Turtle Mountain and Jeff Irway and T- uh, Ted Rice from Marble and. Had this great group of of beer friends who eventually asked me to be their executive director when they created an association uh, back in 2012. And from that, learned about the craft beer sector and how to run, manage associations. And in 2016, uh, I met with wine growers and got to to transition as I I turned 40 and I moved into a more adult beverage, um, a sophisticated craft beverage. And so I I joined the wine world in 2016 and have been uh, happy ever since working with uh, 50 New Mexico wineries running what is called New Mexico Wine and Grape Growers Association. Uh, we're a C6 uh, nonprofit, and our, our focus is to promote, protect, and educate individuals about the wine industry in New Mexico. 
Oh, yeah. It's a great organization. In fact, I've been involved with it for a while, too. It's interesting. I didn't realize that, yeah, you came here 99, same as I did. And and the same thing, it was really watching the renaissance that was coming on here in wine and also craft beers. And, in fact, when we st- first started the show, we were doing, it was uh, New Mexico Spirits, right? So it was everything. It, it was the spirits, the the beers, and, and the wine. Uh, eventually, we had a guy just covering the beers. And so we transited mostly to, to wine with some spirits. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're still filling all the, all the barrels we can. Well, and the lines are getting blurred more and more these days. What I've seen in the time that I've been in the industry is it's gone from the silos of beer, wine, and spirits to the overlapping industries at the intersections. And so these collaborations are coming out now. You've got folks that are making beer and, and spirits or, or, uh, or they're brewing uh, beer and making wine. And so you've, you've got all these nuances now that are starting to blur the lines. And I think the craft beverage sector is, uh, is less about the individual silos. It's all fermentation science. But there's just a ton of information. I think once you learn one, you start to get curious about the other, and then oh, yeah. you know it's 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 sort of an addiction if you're into fermentation. It, you want to know all you can about it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In, in fact, I've been fascinated with all aspects of it too. But uh, so anyway, um, so the, the show today, and uh, one of the reasons that that we had Chris on the show is because we're talking about sparkling wines, and in fact, when when I first met him, uh, we were. Uh, th- this was a presentation he was doing with uh, Gure, uh with American Wine Society. So this is uh, uh, Karen Barrettino had one that had set that up. And in fact, one of the things he has done here is bring us a bottle of a Pinot Meunier, uh, 100% from Gruet. And uh, the first time I actually got that, of course, ironically, uh, was with, with Karen and Bill when I was into their house in, in Placidus. And I was just sitting down, and Karen poured me a, a glass of uh, champagne, uh, sparkling wine. And I, as soon as I took the first taste, I said, what is this? This is wonderful. And, and I, I, I hadn't realized at that time, and I should have, I suppose, that Gruet had now was now doing 100% Pinot Meunier, which, if you're not familiar, is the third grape, along with Chardonnay, Pinot Noir. And it's actually, a, there's a, a more of it grown in Champagne than the other two. Uh, so, and it's uh, so it's it was about high time someone in the U.S. came out with uh, 100%. I, I think they're the first ones to do it, aren't they? Yeah, I'm, I've been really impressed with Gruet as I've I think I've been a part of an interesting period in their uh, in their evolution. Uh, and so, you know, I think everyone's just kind of very familiar with their flagship Brut and Blanc de Blanc and Blanc de Noir, and they're very affordable and. Uh, and they're very approachable, but they're distinctively well done. And mm-hmm. uh, and so you start to see, you know, specialty. And I know Laurent has been experimenting with wine since he took over, uh, you know, the the business and 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 convinced his father that there should be a still wine program. So he's been pushing the boundaries. But they first came out with the Sauvage, which was the extra dry brute. Oh, yeah. And Sauvage kind of blew me away because I just hadn't seen anything like it. And I thought. As I looked around the marketplace, wow, there's not this isn't happening in California oh. the way that you think, and and so I thought, well, you know, they were following the trend. I didn't know they were setting the trend. Yeah. And then I went out to uh, to Napa, and I was meeting with folks at um, uh, Domaine Chandon and at um, Carneros, and I said, yeah, we have a brand new New Mexico Pinot Meunier sparkling, hundred percent, and they said, oh, we're working on that. We're, <laughs> we're, we're coming out with ours soon, and so. To be to know that Gruet is is not just you know uh, just copying you know 
what's happening in France or, or what's happening in California, but setting the trend here in New Mexico, yeah. that's what I find impressive, you know, to show up to work every day. Absolutely, yeah. And, and in fact, yeah, we, we have been, from, from the first time I came and tried their wines, and, and I tried a lot of the California wines, and I figured they were going to be, you know, the top. And then I tried the first one of these, and I went like, how can you sell a wine for that price? Wow. That's like, uh, unbelievable. And so, you know, and, and I said, you know, maybe I shouldn't just keep saying this on air because then they're going to get the idea they're going to have to crank the price up. <laughs> well, of course, the price has gone up like everything else these days. Yeah. Uh, it's still a better deal than getting gasoline. So, um, and it goes much better in, in your tank, too. So, uh, but that is part of what this show is going to be about. Well, of course it is. We're talking about Thanksgiving uh, and the holidays. Uh, I can't think of anything that speaks better uh, about it is sparkling wines. Champagne, sparkling wines, uh, cromants, uh, anyone who wants to make a really well-crafted uh, sparkling wine is is already my fan. <laughs> and uh, Gruebic has been mine for as long as I can think of. In fact, when people go out, if they're bringing sparkling wines, Almost invariably, it's a gruet. If they don't, they say, "What is the matter with you? You didn't bring a gruet." <laughs> you know, what is this California nonsense you're bringing? So it, it has obviously gotten a you know very well supported here in New Mexico, but also nationwide. And uh, so it was it two hundred seventy-five thousand bottles. No, how much is it now? It's some ridiculously high number. Oh yeah, uh, the cases. Yeah, so it's it's they're pushing three hundred thousand cases. Right. pushing towards 400,000 cases. So I, I can never keep track because every time I go over there, they're expanding and they're moving things around. But the number is growing. Uh, the, the parent company that owns Gruet is called Precept Brands out right. of Seattle, Washington. And, and they're, they're very much known for being a company that is in the gold standard for distribution when it comes to uh, increasing sales and increasing volume. And so Yep. They, they they have their foot on the gas, but they have the resources now and the distribution network to be in all 50 states and 13 countries and and growing. You know, so that they're they're taking on projects. I mean, may, people may not know this, but Gruet private labels for Whole Foods, Trader Joe's, um, and for Total Wine on their specialty sparklers. And Ooh. so they're doing a lot of contract work in addition to the brands that you know them for that have their namesake on the on the on the label. So it's a it, it's an impressive operation, and I always, I've always felt, as I've had this job, that we as New Mexicans, we know and love them, and the name is pretty pretty broadly known you know, nationally, but I think there's a whole lot more that I can do as the director of this organization and we as a, as a group of wineries to leverage the fact that we have a Gruet in our state. Oh, that is one of the things that when I came here from California, I figured, oh, I'm in New Mexico, where are we going to find wine? Well... Of course, as time evolved and I became involved with a lot of local winemakers, I realized that even though it was a renewal or re- renaissance, that there was some really special things going on here. And then when, when I tasted the Gruet wines and the D.H. Lacombe, which are the big two mm-hmm. of, of our wineries here, I said, I think I found a new home. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been that way ever since. So, yeah, we, we should be very thankful for, for having both of these um very good wine wine companies here, and uh, yeah, per, per Precept. Uh, per, it was a, a few years ago when, when when they joined the Precept. Yeah, I believe it was before my time in sixteen. I'm guessing it was around fourteen. But yeah, uh, there's a fact checker out there who knows I'm wrong. And uh, but <laughs> but let's just say it was in the uh, in the first five years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
of of the 20 teens. Uh, and so uh, it's just been an interesting evolution to watch the the companies grow uh, simultaneously, Grue and and Precept. Absolutely. So the the two wines we have, the the one I brought is a, is a pure Loire. Uh, it is a sparkling Vouvray, uh, obviously from the Loire Valley. Um, it is done, of course, in the Métaux Traditionnel, uh, which is the traditional method, uh, which is the same thing as the Métaux Champenois. Uh, I always love saying that, <laughs> at least once. And uh, so this, of course, as as we know, is the premier way to make a great sparkling wine, whether it comes from Champagne or anywhere else. As long as you have good quality grapes, you have a winemaker that knows what they're doing, and, and they understand the labor-intensive and passion and dedication that goes into making a great sparkling wine, they can do it. And that's uh, Gruet is a perfect example of that. And uh, so the, one of the reasons I wanted to have Chris on was because he was a, a representative of Gruet, but also because I was hoping he would bring a nice bottle of wine. <laughs> <laughs> I know, that's my mercenary side. What can I say? Uh, and, of course, this is a... Pinot Meunier, this is, uh, as I said, the third grape, 100%, the first one out there. And uh, so, yeah, I was, uh, he, even though I've been astonished more than once, the Sauvage was the other one. Uh, they had a, that, that was another epiphany. When I first tried the first so Sauvage they had, I said, oh, where have you been all my life? Hmm. Oh, this is wonderful wine. And, and I, I love those really. And, of course, this is an extra brute um, if you want to have a definition. Very, very dry, very much in the in the tradition of a cristal, but a lot less expensive, <laughs> and I think that's great too. And uh, in fact, when we were there, we we tried some of the still wines, which were great. Uh, we had what a 2003 Pinot Noir, and a 2011 was it? Yeah, uh, 10. I think it was a 10. 2010. Yeah, and they were really, really w- w- well done. So they do still wines as as well. Uh, not typical in, in the Champagne region, although some of them are starting to do that now, uh, is adding some still wines to it, partly because the the crop, because weather has gotten a little bit warmer, which for the Champagne region and the Loire Valley is was a good thing. They've actually, the, the quality, the, the hang time, which means translates to the quality of the wines, has really increased over time, and they're they're all becoming a lot more special. And uh, so that, that was one of the reasons I, I brought this uh, sparkling uh, Vivray had not tried one before, as far as I know. Well, I, I probably had in the past, but didn't remember what it was. But uh, well, well, you tried it. What, what did you think of? This? I, I'm yeah. I'm, so I'm new to this as well. Uh, I'm uh, I'm I'm in my brain has been in in New Mexico and in the United States. So I spent time in California and in New Mexico uh, doing tastings. I haven't been to France in years and years. Uh, so if you had explained to me this before I had tasted, I wouldn't have known that the Loire Valley was producing sparkling wines. Um, but this is a great example of a, an affordable sparkler that you picked up at Total Wine. It's in the same price point as the, uh, the Sauvage range from Gruet. Right. Uh, and so if you're looking for uh, easy pairing wines that are uh, light and approachable, uh, for your Thanksgiving pairings or for welcoming your guests into your door. Hopefully, maybe it's been a, a while since you've had family over. Uh, a $20 sparkling wine, this is a great a, a great option. Right. And, and the, the uh, uh, are they going to be doing another Pinot Meunier uh, at Gruet? Yeah, so I was trying to get uh, 
some notes to come through my phone here while we were chatting. And unfortunately, uh, our, our new winemaker, which we should talk about here in a bit, um, yeah. but uh, Cyril Tanatsak is the new winemaker over at Gruet, and so he's in charge, and he's definitely interested in the sparkling wines. Uh, I'm, I am almost, without hesitancy, going to say yes. Uh, the idea of this wine uh, being its 100% origin in New Mexico and one of the you know cutting-edge wines in the United States, uh, stylistically speaking, grape speaking, I think there's no reason for them to not continue to do the Pinot Meunier sparkling. They also do a Pinot Meunier still wine uh, that's also grown on the same Santa Ana Pueblo plot. So I, yeah, I foresee, again, these are small batches that don't get distribution, so uh, all of you on the inter- Internet listening to us far-flung, uh, you're not going to find the Pinot Meunier in your in your short in your store shelves, but for wine club members and for folks in New Mexico, uh, this is just one of those things that you know we're, we're close to the source, so we get access to it. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. That's that's one of the, uh, the 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 reasons that I just love being here is is having such a fabulous champagne house, if you will, um, really doing such a, a great job here. So. So, so we're, we're talking about sparkling wine. This show is also sparkling wine and rosé for Thanksgiving. Well, whether we actually get to rosé at all, we are actually just doing sparkling wines. Uh, but, of course, you can also combine your love and have sparkling rosés. They're uh, regular. Uh, in fact, this is a guaranteed the rosé brut, the, the basic one. I'm always grabbing some of that. And the grand uh, rosé is the, the, the vintage one. Has been astonishing. Uh, do we still have one of those, or is it we coming up? Uh, there's also the the Sauvage Rosé, uh, and so oh, yeah. I think there's probably four Rosé sparklers on right now at Gruet. Is my oh, prediction? Okay, okay. Yeah. But, but we still have the the. Well, and, and so Danielle is the. I, I, if I'm not mistaken, and again, I'm, I I don't work at Gruet, but I work on their behalf and try to right. help promote them. Oh, yeah. So I'm not always spot on, but I do believe, if I'm not mistaken, that Danielle, which is named after the um, uh, the Grand Mare, um, so the founder's wife, uh, is a sparkling rosé, and it's a reserve vintage. So, um, But again, I, I have not, I'm not up on my inventory, so those of you at Gruet listening, cringing and, and biting your tongue right now, text me the update so I can let everyone know. Absolutely, yeah. It's like, well, only four in a thousand cases. What do you mean you don't remember everything they got going out there? It's like, oh yeah, okay. So yeah, and, and of course the you know, rosé by itself is wonderful. The various colors you can get, the uh, Christmas, the the food pairing capabilities, uh, especially the classic ones we have now that are you know, Provence for, for kind of drove that that kind of thing, where people were were doing a lot drier styles which work really well with uh, lots of foods. But, you know, even the heavier styles are still, uh, are actually kind of suffering uh, that uh, some of the the ones that were more extracted. But those also can can work uh, on a Thanksgiving day. But, of course, if you can't can't have both, or you can have both by having a sparkling rosé, those Jew-like colors, I, I mean, that just... Shouts! It actually does shout. If, if you're listening carefully, you hear the, the the wine shouting. This is what you want for your Thanksgiving. So, um, a little sparkling wine history. We always do that. So, you were expecting that, right? Okay. So, a little sparkling wine history. And of course, as we know, the the, the one most people think about is Don Perignon, uh, the celebrated monk who pioneered the concept of, of uh, champagne. 
as we know it today. Um, however, uh, ironically, he spent most of his life trying to eliminate the bubbles in the wine because the glass, the bottles were shattering. Uh, one shattered, another, pretty soon they lost a lot. Uh, they had a few monks that probably had some, some issues with flying glass too. So uh, he was trying to do something with that and, and try to figure out what was going on. So going back in time a little bit, uh, before he entered the abbey at uh, Dauvalet, uh he had spent time in the south of France, learned about uh, some of the sparkling wines they had going there in an area called Le Mans. Uh This particular area is high in the, in, in the mountains and Pyrenees. It's in uh, the Languedoc region, uh, so it is south of France area. And uh, they were doing sparkling wine, although, remember, back in those days, and this was way way back in time, um, people knew that, had an idea that if you did this and that, you had wonderful wine. Exactly what was causing it, they weren't really sure. Same thing was with bubbles when they showed up in wine. It says, where did the bubbles and that wine come from? Uh, I don't know. It's 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 there now, right? So, we, what happened is 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 of course, and this is I'm theorizing on, on this because no one knows exactly. Uh, now the monks did document that the monks in, in that area did document very precisely what what it is that that they were doing. In fact, if it wasn't for religion, we wouldn't have had the great wines we have now. So, whether you like it or not, that's that. It's part of the foundation. And so they had documented this, and, and obviously Dom Bernion would have gotten information about that. And I guess in his point, he said, well, I, we have really nice still wines. We want to keep them still. <laughs> we don't want them getting agitated. Uh, so he, he would have tried to figure a way out of it, and then he finally gave up his hands and said, oh, okay, uh, what, what, what else are we going to do? We're just going to have to do it. Now, the thing is, in the Lamo area, the even though they were also having the secondary fermentation in the bottle. Okay, so what happens in in some areas, if you had a particularly cold year, um, the fermentation stops. Okay, at certain, at certain temperatures, when things get cold enough, the fermentation will stop. So that means you have residual sugar in there and still yeast that has been consumed. So now you bottle it, and then when things get warmer, the fermentation takes off again. Only this time it's in the bottle, so it traps the CO2. You have the sparkling wine in there. Now it's possible the residual sugar or the type of bottle they were using, whatever, uh, didn't break. So instead they would pour this stuff out and they would say, this is a really strange taste. I think I like it, though. And uh, eventually that's what they were doing. This is now called their ancestral method. That So you can still get a Lameau ancestral method that they did. Uh, the other thing that evolved o- over time, and this is one thing that happened after Don Perignon, and, and that was, uh, the, uh, the, uh, Widow Clicquot. She was the one that came up with the riddling process. And this was, well, you know, this is great stuff we have here, except we still have yeast and spent yeast cells and stuff in sediment, if you will, in the bottle. And in fact, when the French used to do this, they would use a coupe. And they would put some in there. They would slam it down like a shot and then put the, in, invert the coupe to get all the sediment out. So, uh, obviously if you wanted a purity of a wine, especially to be able to see the bubbles, it'd be nice if you could actually do that. So that's where the riddling process came from. And in that case, they would basically gradually 
start turning the bottle over until it was on the neck of the bottle. And then they would freeze the, the neck because that's where all the sediment is going to settle. And then take then, and, and of course, they didn't use their full corks. So the, the, these were just caps they put on it. Take off the cap, that would pop out the uh, the plug and then put a little more wine in. And then they would do a second uh, a, a, a second dosage. Uh, and that would that would be the sweetness level that they wanted, and so we can really thank uh, Madame Clico for that. In fact, she was quite a dynamic woman from all events. Uh, so she, she uh, was the one that got sparkling wine to Russia, or actually champagne to Russia, and got them totally hooked on it. And so uh, things evolved from there. But you could still go to Lamo, and you could still get their wines. We actually had one on on the show before. It was actually uh, Thomas Jefferson they named it because apparently he has some of that Lameau sparkling wine in his wine cellar. Isn't that wild? <laughs> I mean, so obviously we've had a long, 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 long history with sparkling wine. And uh, so th- this evolves to the basic methods that we're using. And uh, that is, there's, well, let, let's talk about the, first we'll talk about the, the types we, we can have. Um, so the two basic ones, the ones we already mentioned, the traditional method, the uh, metal champagnois, um, and they have different names for it, but it basically is the same basic process that we're talking about, where you do the, you ac- actually add a, a yeast, a special yeast usually, and uh, a, 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 yeah, a ye- yeast and, and some sugar, because you want to start the second fermentation. That goes in the bottle, uh, it's capped. And uh, the the other key thing that's going to go on on here is is how much sweetness you want. Now that's going to be the second uh, iteration they're going to do. So the first iteration is starting the fermentation after the riddling process. The second process, the second time we're we're going to add uh, more of this is is going to be in the the uh, is is going to be what we sometimes call the dosage and. Uh, all of these, of course, are going to reflect different uh, types of wine that we're going to have. So w- w- one of these is the non-vintage. This is non-vintage. Sometimes people call it multiple vintage because it is. And this is the traditional way we made sparkling wines. And it's the way I think a lot of ones do it, is, is you're going to use more than one vintage and you're going to take the wines that, that are special for, for you and blend them t- together uh, to, to make a consistent wine year after year, and so non-vintage doesn't uh, th- doesn't mean it's not quality wine. In fact, some non-vintage ones can be the best wines that they have in the house. So the vintage ones, though, are ones that are from a declared vintage year in Champagne. In other areas, it could be every year. Uh, but in, in the case of Gruet, it's it's uh, just every few years that they're doing a vintage. So. Again, the same process it, they're using here that they do in Champagne is if it's not going to be a really good quality year for our grape, we're going to have to rely on multiple years to make the same level quality that we want. And, and so that's so the, the vintage years, though, are, of course, uh, because you're using their top grapes now, you expect to pay more money for it, uh, and, you, and you should. So and, and, of course, these can be quite exquisite. Because all of one year can go into it, which is what we expect with still wines, but it's not typical for sparkling wines. Uh, then we also have the Cuvée de Prestige, 
or the Tete Cuvée or the Grand Cuvée are all basically terms the Champagne Houses came out with that basically say this is our the best wine that we can put out. And, of course, the other ones you've seen, Blanc de Blanc, means that it's all white wine grapes, typically Chardonnay. But uh, we could have said that with the sparkling uh, Bouvray if we wanted because it's all white, but they don't do that. And uh, then you have Blanc Noir. This is where we've used uh, either of the black grapes, uh, as the term says, either Pinot Noir or, or Pinot Meunier. And, again, and the one we have here is uh, Pinot Meunier. So they could have called it a Blanc Noir if they wanted to, but then you wouldn't get the fact that it's not your typical uh, Blanc Noir. In fact, it is a very atypical and very wonderful one. Uh, and, of course, then, of course, we have the rosé wines. Now, the one thing different here, it's usually a blend of white and red wine that makes their that makes their rosé. That's one of the ways you can make rosé. Uh, in fact, Champagne is one of the few areas that legally can do that. Most other places, they say, you did what? <laughs> no, you're not allowed to do that. What's the matter with you? Uh, so, um, the uh, one we're looking at now is is good. Well, why don't you talk a little bit more about the the, uh, the this particular wine because I wanted to hear a little bit more about it. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> the, the the great story about this is the is the partnership between the Pueblo Santa Ana and Gruet, and this all right. this all kind of matriculate. This all happened around the same time that the company was uh, was transitioning to Precept, and so. Uh, the story that I've heard is that the uh, the Pueblo of Santa Ana, and, and if you look right. in history in New Mexico, uh, there are examples of Native American tribes growing for the for-profit wine industry. Um, in fact, I have an article from Harper's Bazaar, 1895, that talks about this happening down in the Isleta Pueblo area. So we know that this, what I like to call the Pueblo private partnership, has happened right. in the past, right? So the Pueblo right. reaches out to... Um, I don't know if it was an HHS grant or, but it was a federal grant that they received to uh, to go into one of their multi-business sectors. So they do a lot of growing. They have a lot of water. They have a lot of land and expertise in growing. Uh, and so Santa Ana applied for funding to plant a 30-acre experimental vineyard in partnership with Gruet. So they knew going in they had a buyer for their product. Um, I believe this year was the fourth, if not fifth, harvest. It's probably the fifth because. COVID probably made me forget a year. So, uh, so five years ago, um, they tilled the ground up, and that's the vineyard that you notice as you're driving north towards Placidas uh, as you're headed out to Algodones on your right-hand side, headed north. Um, and uh, there's a great grape grower who's on campus there. I believe his name's Jim. He's been with the team for uh, a couple of years now. He comes out of California, Oregon. A lot of history-grown grapes, and he's doing an amazing job. Uh, and again, there's there are a lot... Critics who think that we can't grow Pinot Noir here in the desert, you know, the high desert, they think it's too temper- temperamental, too picky a grape. It's challenging. Yeah, but they've done a really amazing job. Uh, every harvest has is, is been bigger and better. Um, they're finally, I think now, you know, at full potential of this vineyard. And so Laurent Gruet originally said, I want to plant Chardonnay, I want to plant uh, Pinot Noir, and I want to plant Pinot Meunier. And that's, this is the big experiment. The question was, is this grape going to grow here very well? Because there was no knowledge of it, right? So this no. is the first planting in New Mexico. 
uh, and uh, they've done a great job with it. So, I mean, it says right here on the back uh, that this was, you know, Laurent's vision to have a wine that celebrates Gruet's 30th anniversary from 100% New Mexico grapes, showcasing this connection between the land and the people of New Mexico. Right. Uh, so, uh, 30th anniversary wine, um, 100% uh, Burnley. Oh, I mean, uh, <laughs> so uh, Middle Rio Grande Valley would be the AVA. Um, and right. it's uh, it's kind of just a, you know, when you look around, um, what what always tickles me when I go to California or I travel is that uh, we have things in New Mexico that other other places don't have, you know. So uh, when you look at the variety of grape style, it's not the quantity of grapes that we grow here, you know. Is that that's pretty minuscule? I mean, the, the you know the volume or the acreage of vines isn't isn't a lot, and it's always been bigger than this in history. We're at a of a low point but the diversity is what's fascinating and as you have countries like france that are looking back to the heritage grape styles and grapes that they've been planting to find things that are going to be adaptable climate change uh, we've got 50 or 60 grapes that grow really well in new mexico and we have history with it so again this is a testament to laurent's family's history to their vision and their groundbreaking uh, uh, pioneering spirit uh, which is 100% Gruet. That's that's in their in their blood, uh, and it, it's a transition period as well when the family you know is no longer running it and they've they've moved into you know uh, a larger family-run organization precept, uh, and 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 that gives them a whole new platform I think to operate on. So it, it's it's an interesting wine at a very pivotal point in the Gruet family history uh, as it transitions and shifts now into a, a bigger, broader global you know. Performer, wow! Thank you. That was great. You know, yeah, I I had just the the you know the the, the whole thing about the and the the vineyards and stuff like that, and that was the first time I I realized the origin of that. So yeah, that's great background. Uh, and that and yeah, the thirtieth anniversary. This is a great way to celebrate it with with a one off that no one else in in uh, the U.S. is doing, and that's one of the reasons why. We love Gruet. So <laughs> we should tell everybody, however, the vintage that I got you is from the library because this is not currently available yeah. on the market. Right. There may be a few bottles floating around, but uh, if you if you go to Gruet saying, I heard Jim talk about this on the radio, yeah. and they're going to be angry with us if we... Yeah. If we're, yeah. So this is a special bottle I brought because yes. it's my first time on the show and Jim specifically requested it, but... Uh, what I'll try to find out before uh, end of program is if if and when the next uh, the iteration of this is going to come out. Yeah, because they <laughs> they I, I'm sure they they want to continue doing this as as wonderful as this this one is. It's going to be special. So yeah, that that this was uh, something very special that I I asked I actually prayed and and Chris <laughs> delivered. So thank you for that. <laughs> I I did I, I do that sometimes. So. Uh, uh, I think Eddie should try a little bit of this, and uh, so, so since we're still on, on the front side, we're, we're, we're segueing back and forth be, between the the two bottles. Um, so we, we talked about some of the the basics about uh, this particular wine. So the uh, when they do come out with, with a, a, another one, and in fact, uh, there, there's a, there may be. Uh, more that that will come out in in the library that they might re- release later, but I'm just trying to get back through here and let's see back into the ah yes so the the other wine that that we're talking about here is is in the Loire Valley and of course this is a 
Actually, it may not be a Cremant. They didn't specifically say on it, and, and most times that they do. Uh, so a- anyway, the other French sparkler is Cremant. Uh, we talked about this before, C-R-E-M-A-N-T. Uh, so this was a term coined in the, in 1980s uh, to define French sparkling wine from other regions than Champagne. Um, and a way to uh, distinctly identify them. And there are currently eight uh, different areas, uh, wine regions, that can use the, the term Cremant. Uh, the ones that we're most likely going to see, well, one obvious one would be Cremant de Bourgogne, Burgundy. Well, let's see, what are there two grapes? Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. Gosh, aren't those the same grapes we use in Champagne? So it makes obvious sense that that would be a, a case. Up above that would be Cremant de Alsace. Um, and, of course, here they're using different uh, grapes, probably Pinot Gris and Pinot Blanc will, will be a, a couple of the ones that they'd use there. The uh, Going all the way down to the lower part, we have the Cremant de Limo, which is the one that I had mentioned ju- just previously. And then coming all the way up on the other side uh, up to Cremant de Bourgogne. And then finally... Cremant de Loire. So those are the, the the primary ones. There's the other ones you probably won't ever see. Cremant de the the D D I E is spelled mm-hmm. is, is pronounced D. Fortunately, you going to die? No, no, I don't want to go there. Uh, so uh, Cremant de, de Jura and Cremant de Luxembourg, which is a really teeny teeny little. I've never seen any of those anywhere uh, around here. But the and very seldom do I see the Cremant de uh, Bordeaux, but the Cremant de Bourgogne and the Cremant de Loire, very common. Uh, there's a lot of those out there. Always check them out. They're really good quality wines. Uh, a little bit less that you have to pay for than you would for a a uh, champagne, usually. So the uh, Loire Valley and the Cremant de Loire. So this is a huge, uh, the, the river is over 300 miles but about 174 miles of it are the Loire Valley. And we talked about this area before, fabulous area. Uh, the, actually, the Loire Valley is 625 miles. It's the largest one in France. And uh, so about 500 square miles of this are one really big valley. And uh, so obviously the river is going to empty into the Atlantic. That's at the, the port of Nantes, uh, but it's 30 miles upriver. Uh, the the first place that you're going to hit there is is going to be, uh, and the first grapes you're going to get to is the Melon de Bourgogne. Um, it has nothing to do with Burgundy, of course, but it's actually normally called the Melon grape. And this is the wonderful Muscadet. That was one of the first French wines I tried when my wife took me there. And boy, what a great seafood wine that is. Ooh, we, we love that. If you continue further up there, that's, that's part of what we call the Lower Loire. And... Uh, then you get to the middle Loire, and there's actually two areas. The first is the Samore Anjou area, and uh, we've had a- actually some of the Anjou Rosé on the show here. And we actually had uh, one of the Samar wines, also a-, a red still. And then further up, which is where we want to go, is the center Loire Valley, and this is uh, around the area of t- t- Terrain. And it's, uh, this is a the Cher River is a tributary of the Loire, and uh, that that particular area has... Sancerre and Puy Puymay. Uh, those are two very distinctly different uh, Sauvignon Blanc wines, but they're right across from each other. And, and because the, with the side of the river yawn is a significant aspect, but by the way, 
um, as, as in the Ryan Gao and, and Ryan Hessen, uh, these are distinctly different a, as well. And then moving back a little bit to the middle Loire terrain. So this is the area between around Tours, uh, Tour mostly. We always drop the S. Sorry about that. And uh, this, this is... Uh, this goes up to the city of Orléans, which is where Joan of Arc came from. And the, the wines around there are mostly Cabernet Franc and Chenin Blanc. Cabernet Franc is Chenin, uh, which was also figured in the Joan of Arc's time. And uh, Bourguet and Saint-Nicolas de Bourguet are, were really elegant, age-worthy Cabernet Franc. The, the Cab Francs we've had from there are astonishingly good. <laughs> really amazing. They've they because there's there's the warmer growing season they're they're getting fully uh ripe grapes now and making some really head knocker wines let's say and then the other one of course is Chenin Blanc uh so this is the classic grape of the Vouvray area so they, they they make them very dry to sweet and also uh make sparkling wines and so that's that's what this one is it's a pure Loire Vouvray brut um it is from uh Bougrier. Uh, 12.5% uh, alcohol, 19.99 at Total Wines. Really good deal for the price, I think. Um, and uh, th- in fact, uh, Maison uh, Bougrier has been making great Chenin Blanc wines for a long time. So this is only one of the ones they do. This particular one, uh, of course, is done méthode traditionnelle. Uh, it's uh, the bottles are kept on the leaves for a minimum of 24 months. Uh, this obviously is going to add a lot more complexity, creaminess to the resulting sparkler. Uh, very distinctive bottle, uh, black with blue accents. It'll dress up any table you put it on. <laughs> and uh, tasting notes, um, it's a riper style of, of grape, medium intensity golden color, uh, aromas of uh, ripe golden apples, apricot stone fruit, pear, honey, orange peel, and blossom. Wow, they got all that into the bottle. How did they do that? I wonder. Uh, uh, teetering on slightly off dry. I I didn't get uh, a, any real sweetness to it nope. myself. Nope. I thought it was pretty dry myself. So what 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 was your your impression on this one? Uh, again, uh, I always learned from the masters. Right, Laurent Gruet told me, "Why would I make a fifty dollar, sixty dollar sparkling wine if you can buy a sixty dollar bottle of champagne?" You know, so he plays in the field in which he can operate, right? So he said, I got to make a great bottle of wine that I can sell. Gruet, back in the day, I remember first, you know, it was a little, almost less than double digits, right? So um, the price has certainly gone up, but uh, I think 17 is now the current price, and they go up into the 40s. They've now got Magnums and some other larger format, but, uh, I, you know, they, they very much are affordable. So if you have champagne ideals but beer budget, uh, I'd say avoid buying a, 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 you know, if you want to impress someone, go get the champagne. You know, if you got a, a first date, you really want to knock it out of the park, champagne. Uh, you got a, a celebratory event, fine, that's great for champagne. But if you're having a group of people over, it gets a little pricey. Oh, yeah. Anything outside of champagne, the sparkling wines that you're talking of, Loire Valley, um, there's great sparklers now. France just invested in, in, in Ponzi and bought Ponzi, so Bollinger. Boulanger bought uh, uh, an Oregon sparkling wine company, so you can get Oregon, California, or of course New Mexico sparkling wines for much more affordable prices. Uh, you know, seventeen to thirty dollars, you're going to get 
a lot of great uh, quality. And then the other thing about sparkling wine is uh, it, it, it's okay to have sweetness, you know, as you mentioned. So you can have bone-dry, blanc-de-blanc, zero-dosage, like the Sauvage is, or you can add some of those red fruits and get some more berry flavors. You can have uh, larger dosage to get even your, your demi-sex or your du, which is a sweeter style. And so it can be very much a crowd-pleaser, uh, and nobody has to feel offended if you don't like dry, dry, dry wines. Oh, yeah, well... That was never a problem in New Mexico. A lot of people won't like them sweeter anyway. Yep, absolutely. That's just what But again, I, I think that people, we talked about Sancerre, you mentioned, that's a sweet wine. The French drank sweet wines before it became a bone dry wine, you know, preferring country. And so again, I, I try not to discriminate. I think anyone who wants to buy a bottle of wine, is making an adult decision, and uh, and there there's an experiment and an experience behind each bottle. Um, but it, this isn't about shaming people if they don't have the the level of knowledge. I think uh, the fact that Gruet is in your backyard, if you haven't stepped into their tasting room to meet their friendly staff and realize that anybody with uh, with a couple of dollars in their pocket can go have a fun wine tasting experience. Oh, it is a great place. Yes, we, we should not forget that. Uh, if you're just this, this is right off on on the uh, great. What, what is the it's not the access road? It's on the byway right yeah, there yeah. at Paseo del Norte yeah. between Paseo and Alameda, yeah. just on the highway. And if you haven't been in, uh, they've done a beautiful renovation. They have a lovely outdoor patio. If you don't like to be indoors these days, we still have this warm yeah. weather. Uh, and again, you know, it, it's not. You know, some people think of wine as being like a a rich man's game, and I think that in this new era of experimentation, the millennial crowd that wants new things to experience. Um, I was at Casa Rendeni the other day, and I think the entire patio was 20 to 21, let's say, <laughs> 21 to 34, 32, and, and I was the old guy sitting there. So what I love is that I think there's more openness in New Mexico to be able, if you're a novice wine drinker, you don't have to feel like you know, you need to know a lot before you go have a, a good first experience. Oh, Absolutely. Oh, Nouveau Beaujolais. Oh, okay. coming out. Well, yeah, that, that'll be that, next program. <laughs> that, that was one of the problems to be because of the shipping issues we've had, as you probably know, mm-hmm. uh, they have, have have been a problem. So some people are actually going to row out to the ship so they can get their Christmas presents. But uh, that that was one of the things that the, the guy at Total Wine said is is we're concerned we aren't going to get our shipment of Nouveau Beaujolais. And when you have a problem with Nouveau Beaujolais. You have serious shipping problems, okay? Because <laughs> almost always this is when we expect it. In fact, uh, my wife's b- b- birthday is also uh, t- t- today, and uh, so we're celebrating her birthday today. Well, cheers. And uh, so uh, that's one of the things she always said we went, because she spent a couple of years in France, and she said, oh, yeah, I says that they, they bring out Nouveau Beaujolais for me for <laughs> birthday. <laughs> and I have to agree with that. So, yeah. Yeah, but I spent some time uh, in Vegas last week, and you know we went to a restaurant. And you guys were talking about French champagne, and everything that we drank was Bouvet Clicquot. But they don't even tell you. They just said, "Do you want yellow label or white label?" Yeah, and so they bring <laughs> out everything, and you know we're having caviar, we're having foie gras, you are having all this stuff that's a spread. But I got to tell you, this and this are pretty much on par. So back to his comment about, hey, do you really want to kind of spruce it up so the woman knows that you bought them? There's not that much differentiation between these two, especially when you're at a meal. 
It's just knowing what it is, and I think that's just the reputation of it. it's France, it's Champagne. I mean, these are on par, I think, you know, maybe slightly one or two degrees south of that. But I mean, these are this is this is great stuff. Oh yeah, no, no question about that. Yeah, the the uh, Gruet I already knew about it. I I wasn't you know this is the first time I've tried a sparkling uh, Bouvray, as far as I know. Won't be the last time. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think they're doing a really good job. Again, the interesting thing is the different grapes are going to give you a slightly different flavor. Uh, certainly, this is being a Chenin Blanc uh, based one versus Pinot Meunier. You're talking about two classically different: one red, one white. And even so, you taste them, and you aren't aware one is red and one is white. You're just aware they're both wonderful sparkling wines, and that's part of the, the fun of these. I, th- I think is the great joy we can have with them. In fact, usually I do this year-round, but around this time of year, it's like we need to get a bunch more wine. We get more magnums and stuff like that. Time and to celebrate. Yeah. One more thing to Chris, here. Yeah, yeah. Chris, I'm not sure if you can sort of shine light on this. And, you know, you are the – I love love his title. He's the liquid liaison oh, yeah. is of Viva Vino quick? New Mexico wine. Like, And really, this is the heart of culture for New Mexico. Let's not forget uh, yeah. when my people came across and we decided to bring the vines – Back in 1629, and we planted them firmly here. And it's like this was the center of culture for everything, and it, as it is for France. And we we're talking about champagne or sparklers, and there was a bit of uh, controversy back in the day for uh, Laurent, and you know what he had to deal with with the champagne and the naming convention and all of that stuff because he was calling it champagne. But uh, I think he has uh, plowed through that. With uh, you know stellar colors, is, is it, does anybody really care if they call it champagne or sparklers? Is there any you know part of that sort of high oh, fluted, if any, you will? Anyone in France would definitely. Yeah, but how about here? in champagne, they, they and it's it, it, you really shouldn't. I, I mean, it's a uh, it, it's part of respect for wine, part of respect for France, part of respect for the champagne region that you only call a champagne one that comes from there. Everything else is sparkling wine. I mean, the French come out with the Cremant term so that. You could have a distinctive term to say this is going to be a quality sparkling wine, but it's not from the Champagne region. And so so I, I promised I wouldn't come and talk politics here, but I, okay. I'm going to say, uh, <laughs> so this is government. So, yeah, federal, the, uh, the yeah, F. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, the TTB, the Tax and Trade uh, Bureau, who reviews all the labels for approval, would absolutely reject and send your label back to you. So you could call it whatever you wanted to amongst your friends, but if you try to print it on a bottle uh, and sell it, then you would you wouldn't make it very far. So, uh, yeah, government. There are regulations around uh, around names that you can use the the labeling, uh, and so all those approvals have to go through. I, so again, you you made me do it. Big government steps in and <laughs> yeah, yeah. and they wrangle us. But again, I, this is again Napa goes through the same thing. You know, if you think people want to rip off France because of their popularity and the and the success they've had, Napa Valley. There was a a winery in China that named their winery Napa Valley Wine Company, and they were based in China. And oh boy! So there was an international lawsuit that had to go on. So again. You know, uh, people want to call themselves, you know, beer regions or call themselves, we are the Napa Valley of beer. And Napa Valley hates that. You know what I mean? And it's, it's one thing to be at the top, but then it's one to have to sit around and pay lawyers to defend your reputation. So, again, um, all, all respect to those <laughs> who have created their terms. Uh, I do think that, um, uh, that there is value in, in origin, 
and sharing with people and, and, and placing a little bit of parameters. Uh, you know, uh, we're the wild west of winemaking in America. You go over and try to do what we're doing, you know, with winemaking in France, and there would be a guy with a pen and paper writing you a ticket and a fine. So it's, we have all the freedoms, but we can't quite, you know, just take anybody's, you know, reputation yep. and, and pre, and, and co-opt it. So, that's fine. You know, yeah. well, there's always ways to work around that, and there's creative ways to promote your product. And, um, but anyway, good question. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I don't know about the, uh, the good old days of Laurent's struggles, uh, yeah. being a pioneer here in the 80s, yeah. but uh, I, I can't wait to ask him next time I see him. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, no I've, I've actually met Laurent a couple of times. In fact, yeah. we hit it off immediately. A really neat He's guy. Great. I really like him a lot. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was actually a beer festival. That we were doing one of the first beer festivals many years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and I probably wouldn't remember exactly, but it was a number of years ago, and and uh, his booth was was next to ours, and so we just had a great time. So, um, well, here you haven't talked about some of the others out there, and I noticed it was on your notes when I read them. But um, so Germans have sparklings, the Spanish oh, yeah. have spark, the Italians okay. have sparklers oh, as well. Oh so I'm I'm not trying to jump ahead of you here, buddy. But oh, no. No, actually, when I talk about other sparklers and methods, this was interesting because I learned, as I had before, I learned a lot from Wine Folly. Uh, yeah. are, are you familiar with Wine of Folly? Course. Yep. They are great. I, I, uh, you know, uh, uh, she, so Paquette is just an amazing gal, and, and she's done a wonderful job. So anyway, uh, there is actually, as she said, there are six ways of making sparkling wine. I said, I remember two. Uh, let me see what else we got there. So anyway, the traditional method we already know. Okay, so that's the one we've been talking about. Uh, the bottle pressure is five to seven atmospheres, which can be from seventy-five to ninety-nine psi. Uh, you know what you get to hundred psi? It, it was like your your uh, cork can go flying through the ceiling if you aren't careful. So we're going to talk about a little bit about safety with with this because it it is definitely an issue. The tank method or the Charmant process we mentioned before, uh, bottle pressure here is two to four atmospheres, so 30 to 60 psi. A lot less intensity in it. You can tell from the sound as opposed to the pop. And the bubbles are larger, what the, the French themselves call frogs' eggs, because uh, <laughs> they think that you shouldn't do this. Anyway, there's places that do it. It's, it's a valid way to do it. The third, which I wasn't aware of, was the transfer method. Okay, bottle pressure is again five to seven atmospheres. Same thing, seventy-five, ninety-nine psi. Okay, so this is uh, similar to the original method, except uh, rather than being riddled and disgorged, right? We which we talk about that the riddling process. You turn the bottle on its on its neck, and then you freeze the end and you pop that out. That's the disgorging part. Uh, okay, these are instead of doing that, they're emptied into a large pressure tank, filtered to remove yeast. Uh, and so this is very different, but it's, it's commonly used for splits, 187 milliliter, those little nittily things you've seen, and large format bottles, beginning with the Jeroboam, which is three liters and larger. So the riddling, the, the riddling now, of course, is done with machines, but can you imagine taking a Machisledek bottle, which holds 30 liters of wine, and trying to turn it on its neck? Good luck with that ain't going to happen. So this method is what they do. It's a variation they use for the large the large format bottles. Again, beginning with Jeroboam and going from there. And uh, you, you've, you've, 
probably had a couple of large format bottles at, at some time? Uh, the largest one I saw was at Wine and Chili, and it was a rosé that they brought. And so uh, I, I don't know if it, how big it was. It, I mean, it was the, the height of a man, a full-grown man. That was pretty big. Yeah, okay. I don't know what it was. That would have been pretty big, I, I think. And, of course, the ancestral method is actually based on the original method that Lamoque came out with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in that, that case, which is interesting, uh, it begins in a tank uh, partially fermented and filtered, then frozen, shut down the fermentation for several months, then bottled when fermentation completes, and the CO2 obviously is trapped. And finally, bottles, in this case, are riddled and, dis- and disgorged, but they don't use a liqueur d'expedition, which is what we sometimes call the dosage, yeah. uh, is added. Uh, so that is a variation. Now, in the original Lameau, like I said, it probably was the weather that caused this to happen. And so it wasn't something they did as, as a plan. It was a happy accident. <laughs> adaptation, yes, adaptation. <laughs> and, and the other interesting one is the, is the Russian continuous method. It's a variation of the tank method. Yeast is continually added until the desired pressure is reached and passed into other tanks to enrich and filter it. Uh, so this is usually large companies in Russia, Germany, and Portugal do this. I've never had one of those either. But it was just like, oh, how are we doing? Uh, add, add some more yeast. Oh, we're up to about five atmospheres. No, I want to get up to 20. No, 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 we can't do 20. Okay, well, whatever, but let's just keep going. And, of course, the last one is the carbonation method. We just add carbonation to it, and this is for cheap. You do not want to drink these wines, really, unless you have no money at all, because that's it's just not right. <laughs> that just may be me personally, but th- there it is. Wow. I mean, this is, again, uh, a spectacular overview of this whole idea behind sparkling wine, that there are so many different ways of doing it. The old world has has obviously perfected it, but then built upon it. And then uh, if you want to see what Jim is talking about, in your, in, you don't have to envision it in your brain or hear it through the radio, but you want to see it hands-on, I do know that you can do a tour of Grow A. Um, they're constantly bottling and transferring, and they're, 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 they're dosaging, they're uh, riddling. Uh, you, so you can actually see all of these actions and activities happening in real time over at, at our local sparkling wine house if you want to if you want to step into the three-dimensional world. Absolutely. And if, if, if some guy comes up and you say, I'm the Riddler, he really isn't talking about Batman. <laughs> well, again, uh, you know, those of you out there, I really appreciate the opportunity to come in and chat today. New Mexico oh, absolutely. working up come towards back our, yeah, our 400th anniversary of wine, everyone, is in 2029. So we are starting preparations wow. for the, the oh, biggest yeah. wine party in American history is coming your way, folks. Be prepared. Ooh. Ooh. How about that for preparation? Oh, That's yeah. Unbelievable. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. I just said 1629. He's like, now fast forward 2029. We have the biggest party uh, in the country. Oh, yeah. boy. Amazing stuff. We Chris, absolutely will. thank you so much for being My here. My pleasure. Thank you for yes, sharing absolutely. your knowledge. Uh, we'd love to have you on again. So whenever Jim can get you on here, uh, we'll make it worth your while. Absolutely. Let us know where we need to shine our light in the wine world in New Mexico. It is the oldest, and uh, we're proud to have you here in the Kiva. It's an honor. Been great to be here. Thanks, guys. All right, back after a quick break, uh, more great talk, Jim. Thank you for yet another great show. And hey, uh, my favorite uh, mushroom cheese, the uh, triple cream burrito. <laughs> oh yeah, have. I've I've yet to get to the bottom of that. But as always, I'll uh, never leave you wanting, folks. Thanks everybody for being here. Mm-hmm.